It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Juan Williams, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, September 8th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden's son is facing a federal indictment weeks after a plea deal with the special counsel fell apart. Prosecutors say he lied on a federal form saying he wasn't using drugs at the time. So they had worked together on this two year diversion program for nonviolent gun offenders. It was part of the deal that fell apart. We speak with Fox News Sunday anchor Shannon Breen. And Lisa Brady, a possible path to a new trial for the former attorney convicted of killing his wife and son in South Carolina. What we have heard so far is clearly disturbing and, you know, according to the experts that I've spoken to, well worth a hearing that could potentially lead to a retrial for Alex Murdoch. We speak with Fox's Martha McCallum. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. President Biden's son, Hunter, will likely have another day in court soon. Weeks after a plea deal to settle tax violations and a firearms charge fell apart, the special counsel investigating the president's son told a federal court his office is seeking a grand jury indictment by the end of the month. David Weiss has been named special counsel, and in a new court filing, he says, quote, The Speedy Trial Act requires the government to obtain the return of an indictment by a grand jury by Friday, September 29th, 2023, at the earliest. The government intends to seek the return of an indictment in this case before that date. Fox's Lucas Tomlinson reporting on that fast-approaching deadline. In July, it was thought Hunter Biden's legal troubles would be behind him. He had intended to plead guilty to a couple of tax misdemeanors. Prosecutors were recommending a diversion program on a separate gun felony that likely would have kept the president's son from serving any jail time. Instead, a judge questioned aspects of the deal, and by the end of the hearing, it was off. And Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to the tax crimes, and the possibility of an indictment on the felony gun charge was reopened. You know, on the other side, you've got Hunter's team saying, whoa, 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 we had this agreement. Shannon Bream is the anchor of Fox News Sunday. And it sounds like in their filing, their argument to the court is, nope, we still see that agreement about the plea deal or, you know, some of the diversion stuff with related to the gun charge. We still see that as a valid agreement. That's in effect. That's how we're operating and moving forward. Because in the view of the Hunter Biden legal team, the diversion agreement with the gun charge that we're talking about with the indictment and the tax charge, they were separate. But. I guess the question now is if the court views them as separate or if it was sort of one big, you know, one big sort of agreement to get all of this resolved. 
Normally you go to court with this plea deal. It's already been worked out. The judge signs off. But because this judge had a lot of probing questions and about how this thing was structured, she had real concerns about the way that it had been put together. So she sent them back to the drawing board. They couldn't work out a deal again. His team maintains the original deal is still in place. But you got to think when they come back to her with these status reports, one saying, hey, we're going to you know, pursue a formal indictment. The other, no, we're still operating under the old agreement. If she's already told the parties there were flaws or real concerns with that old agreement, I can't imagine now that she's going to just sign off on it. I think that we're just going to have to wait and see what the DOJ does as they signal they're going to move very quickly. And the significance, obviously, is this would be the son of a sitting president indicted Mm -hmm. on a felony gun charge. Is, Is that what we believe the indictment would cover? Yeah, that's what it sounds like this is going to be about, you know, that pistol he bought back in 2018. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors say he lied on a federal form saying he wasn't using drugs at the time. So they had worked together Mm -hmm. on this two year diversion program for nonviolent gun offenders. It was part of the deal that fell apart. But it looks like that's where this indictment is headed. Could that still be an option? Let's say that he is indicted on this felony drug charge. Would you then start working through the process of seeing if they could reach some sort of program or diversionary agreement, or is that off the table now? No, I think that's probably still available. And there have been conversations by a lot of you know legal scholars and folks out there who say, you know, how did you even have a plea deal in the first place if there wasn't an indictment, if you weren't moving forward? Right. They think the yeah. indictment should have happened to get you to the plea deal. So I think unless there's something odd about this case, I think it very much is going to be within the realm of conversation. OK, now we have the formal indictment. Now we start the conversation about how we you know, handle these charges or charge or we move forward to trial. Obviously, every question about this at the White House has been referred to Hunter Biden's representatives and Mm -hmm. his legal team. But the political reality is there would have to be a response from the president who's running for reelection if his son is charged or pleads guilty or something to a felony Mm -hmm. gun charge. No, I think they're going to have to talk about it. I mean, you can't pretend like it doesn't happen if that's where we go. And remember, I mean, when the White House was asked directly Corinne Jean-Pierre, about whether the president would consider pardoning his son, she absolutely said no. Yeah, she said no. I think that was interesting to a lot of people that there was no wiggle room there. It didn't sound like at the time. It sounded as if, you know, although the president has maintained my son's done nothing wrong, I'm very proud of him. Of course, most fathers would be out there publicly standing with their son. It's what we'd want our dads all to do. Mm -hmm. But I was a little bit surprised that it seemed like that door was very firmly, tightly closed if you get to the point of needing a pardon. Is there anything in this case that would require the testimony of the president? Well, keep or is, in mind, he shiel- remember, or is he shielded from taking part in criminal cases? Well, if he's not the subject of it, I think it's very possible that he could be you know, called in there to testify. Remember the DOJ when they were having these conversations about potentially indicting Hunter, they were investigating him. There was back and forth. There was a plea from his side. Don't do it. And then remember, there was the threat. We will call the president to the stand. We will Mm. actually put him on the stand and this will move forward in that way if that's how you guys want to play this. So, you know, at least one party to this thing is already threatened (laughs) to call the president to the stand. I mean, I'm not sure our political environment in our country could get any weirder. But at this moment, (laughs) if you've got a former president on the stand potentially being dragged through numerous criminal trials that could last weeks or months each, and then you've got the current president potentially pulled into something involving a felony charge against his own son, potentially. I mean, truth is stranger than fiction. 
I understand that this is a legal matter and the White House wants to kind of keep itself separate and have that wall between the president and the Justice Department. But there is a political reality that is building and it's going to be fascinating to see how the White House and how the Biden campaign responds to a lot of questions that are that are coming up. Um, all of this happening, mm-hmm. of course, is uh, the president is um, on his way to India. This G20 summit is a fascinating summit in the sense that maybe the most important country there isn't attending, right? Xi Jinping, <laughs> the Chinese president, isn't attending. Now, I think China will be represented, obviously, mm-hmm. but no meeting between Biden and Xi. Um, and a lot of it sounds like that the pitch that's going to be made by the president is that, you know, developing countries, developing economies should be looking west, not east. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the president, our president has said he's quote disappointed that President Xi's not going to be there. Mm-hmm. Remember, there's been a lot of conversation about when they're going to meet, when they're going to see each mm-hmm. other again. And Xi has been making us come to him. Think about all yeah, the there's been a lot of that, cabinet officials and other right. high ranking Biden administration officials exactly. who have been on planes to Beijing in recent months. Right. And meanwhile, yeah. he's not even meeting us halfway at the G20. I wonder where that I would think, be. Like, it's good. <laughs> I know. I think that he's sort of like, nope, I can't even show up for yeah. that. If you guys want to talk, you're yeah. going to have to come here. It's clearly a power play, especially their ongoing conversations between Xi and Putin. Is Kim Jong-un yeah. going to get into the mix? I mean, it's um, it's got to be, yeah. as the president said, a disappointment that they won't have a chance to be together at the G20. But again, I think you're absolutely right. The argument from America is going to be, you know, we're still the leader of the free world. We want to work with developing democracies and developing countries. And so come to us where China has successfully years been out there with, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative Mm -hmm. and um, loaning money in places where loans are very hard to get from some of these um, very young or very unstable countries. And so, you know, maybe without Xi there, Biden will be able to capitalize on that and make some connections and arguments that actually pay off. One of the complaints, at least from the U.S. and others, is that China has made a lot of these investments and loans without the human rights element that the Mm -hmm. United States often would like to see some follow through on. And so that will have to be part, I imagine, of President Biden's pitch as well, Mm -hmm. um, is kind of handling, I think, the human rights side, not just with China, but with a lot of these maybe younger economies or younger democracies. And we've seen how that instability has played out just in recent mm-hmm. weeks in, in uh, Africa and, and in parts of Asia. Yeah. And so, you know, you can look at those as real opportunities. I mean, you don't want to think about people's um, suffering and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, chaos and those kinds of things. But if the U.S. can step in and be a good actor and throw some lifelines into some of these places, not only for our own interests, but for the stability of the world and to help these people who are really suffering, um, that is a great opportunity. So in the snubs and in the, um, you know, actions by China who, listen, their own economy is having trouble. And that's growing more and more evident publicly all the time. Um, but if we can take an opportunity to step in where there's real struggle and hurting and and be a help in the mix that benefits everybody economically and politically, I think that's a good opportunity for this administration. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Sunday. Um, I know that you were going to have Governor uh, Yunkin, the Virginia governor, mm-hmm. the Republican who I think surprised a lot of people a couple of years ago when he won that seat. He has made education, public education, a big part of not just his campaign, but but of his governance as well. That's going to be an issue that isn't going away. We're seeing cases of coronavirus, obviously, increase schools trying to deal with that in a way that maybe is a little bit more informed than it was two or three years ago. But 
How much of that is part of the conversation you're going to have with uh, Governor Youngkin? Yeah, I mean, he's in the middle of all of these hot conversations, whether yeah. it's about curriculum, whether it's about LGBTQ, mm-hmm. um, you know, trans students in sports. I mean, all of these things. Um, test scores are not great. We know that COVID had a huge impact on that. So yes. we're doing a deep dive on all of those issues. There are a lot of legal fights involving parents and schools now. There is a lot of legislation out there about what you can or can't tell parents about what's going on with their kids. So there's just so much bubbling. And we thought, let's do a deep dive. We're doing the state of education on Sunday. Again, um, Governor Youngkin will be our primary guest there, but we're going to break down all of these things. And we've talked Mm -hmm. to parents and kids that are, you know, homeschool, public school. We talked to administrators. We've put just put together a lot about what's working, what's not. I mean, there are scores of kids who are missing from schools, never came Mm -hmm. back after COVID. Mm -hmm. Where are Mm -hmm. they? Um, Have Mm -hmm. they fallen through the cracks? Are they, you know, just simply have dropped out of high school? Um, Are are they taking up charter schools, homeschools? Where are they showing up? What, you know, again, what's working, what's not? Right now we're struggling. And so it's not only the academic, there are these culture wars as well involving schools. So we've got a lot to unpack. We will be watching on Sunday, Shannon. Thanks so much. Uh, have a great weekend. Thank you. This is Tommy Laren with your Fox News commentary coming up. Just over six months since a once prominent South Carolina attorney was convicted of killing his wife and son and sent to prison for life, the defense team for Alec Murdoch unveils their strategy for his appeal, accusing the Colleton County Clerk of Court, Rebecca Hill, of tampering with the jury. We were hitting brick walls until her book came out. Defense attorney Jim Griffin says Hill had private conversations with the jury foreperson. In the request for a new trial filed this week, she's also accused of pressuring jurors to reach a quick verdict and not to trust Murdoch's testimony. Hill's self-published book about the case, written with a co-author, was released last month. And then jurors who obviously were not comfortable with how she handled matters were even less comfortable with her going on a book tour and making money off what she did. That, that's what was reported to us. The defense team emphasizing that the clerk is an elected official and they're not taking issue with the conduct of anyone in the court system. When the murder trial ended in March, it appeared an appeal might zero in on the judge's decision to allow financial improprieties to be part of the case. During his testimony, Murdoch admitted taking advantage of clients and hiding money from his firm while already facing separate charges for financial crimes. But Hill's book shed new light on something defense attorneys had been hearing about, complaints about Hill from jurors, two of them ultimately signing detailed affidavits with claims about Hill's efforts to influence them. This is a huge deal. Martha McCallum is anchor of The Story with Martha McCallum on Fox News Channel and host of the new Fox Nation special, The Fall of the House of Murdoch. I've talked to a a couple of judges and legal experts, including Judge Jeanine Pirro. She said in all the cases that she tried, the idea that the court clerk would be trying to frame the way people looked at the evidence or even go so far as to persuade them on anything is just absolutely, completely out of bounds. Now, we haven't heard from the other side. We haven't heard from Rebecca Hill in terms of what she says she shared and didn't share with these few jurors. And we haven't heard from Creighton Waters or Alan Wilson, the attorney general in South Carolina, the prosecution team about what their understanding is about what happened. So there's there's another shoe to drop in all of this. But what we have heard so far 
is clearly disturbing and, you know, according to the experts that I've spoken to, well worth a hearing that could potentially lead to a retrial for Alex Murdoch. Well, you spent considerable time for the Fox Nation special talking with Buster Murdoch, who had now has a father in prison, a murdered mother and brother. Um, what, if anything, surprised you about him? I sat down with Buster a couple of months after the verdict, and I was a bit surprised that he wanted to talk, but he's seen so much written about his family that he felt he wanted to come forward and tell his side of the story. He was very reserved. I never met him before all of this happened, so I can't really say if he has changed in the way that he communicates with people since all of this, but he's obviously been through an enormous trauma. He's lost his whole family, essentially. His mother and his brother were brutally murdered, shot in the head, in the back, and his father is now in prison for the rest of his life, unless something unforeseen happens with these new developments. And during the course of the trial, he learned things about his father that he never knew. The extent to which his father admitted stealing money from, in many cases, indigent clients that he was representing and their housekeeper's sons, who he promised to take care of. And he also learned the extent of his father's addiction to painkillers. So he's been through a heck of a lot, to put it mildly. And he is, he holds things very close to the vest. He is not someone who is going to easily trust anybody from the outside because he feels that his family has been presented inaccurately in the media. And he wanted to give an opportunity to talk about his life and his childhood and how he perceives all of this. So I think he was quite forthcoming in many ways, but it's understandable that he feels very protective of his own story and of his feelings. And he doesn't believe that his father committed murder, right? He does not. He does not. He, I think, has the same stance that his father has, which is that he did a lot of things wrong in his life and that he has lied to and hurt the people that he loved. But Buster says in the documentary that he does not believe that his father killed his mom, and his brother, Paul. Separately, I spoke with criminologists who say that that is not uncommon, that in many cases, and this happens unfortunately more than people probably realize in this country, not all the cases get the kind of attention this one did, but when family members kill each other, it's not unusual for a child to not be able to go to that place, to believe that a parent could kill the rest of their family members. And that's not to say that Buster is wrong or right, but it's not unusual for a child to simply block out the possibility that could even ever happen, that their parent could be capable of such a thing. Now, he has a firmly held belief that, that his father did not do this, and he's, of course, entitled to whatever, whatever he believes. But a jury decided differently, and they decided differently very quickly in about three hours, the jury came back with a guilty verdict based on all the evidence. And nothing that has happened this week with the court clerk changes any of the evidence in this case. But because of the judicial system that we have in this country, if there's any evidence that the trial happened in a way that was unfair, that a judge sees as unfair, 
in terms of the way that the jury was tampered with or the information that they were given or any persuasion. That's absolutely the most basic taboo of a courtroom is to try to influence the jury. And anyone who's ever watched a legal drama on television knows this. So if these accusations turn out to be true about Becky Hill, even if half of them turn out to be true about Becky Hill, there's a whole other very convoluted story about a Facebook post which ended up leading to the removal of one of the jurors, which is also highly controversial. And the defense claims, based on their conversations with the jurors, that she fabricated a story that ended up getting a juror who was waffling on whether or not Alec was guilty or innocent removed from the jury. So there's a lot of very serious things here. But what we don't have here is a change in any of the evidence. Okay, there's nothing that has surfaced that shows that it was someone else who did it, or new evidence that would lead us in a different direction in terms of the evidence in the case. But this procedural issue is very serious, and it may end up meriting a brand new trial. It's really hard to grasp what a stunning fall this was, not just for Alec, but for a family with such a legacy in that region. Does that part of it weigh heavily on Buster? And and what do we know about Alec's state of mind in prison now? It's hard for me to tell how much contact he has with his dad. After we spoke, there was a recorded phone call where he was trying to Alec was trying to get in touch with Buster after our interview and say, you know, I need to talk to you. I've been trying to reach you about this thing or something like that, which kind of led us to believe that he wanted to talk to him about the interview that he was doing. I I don't know exactly what he wanted to talk to him about. That's just, I just sort of surmised that, but it's obviously difficult for Buster to see what has happened to his family's reputation. I think in many ways it started to unravel with the boat crash that Paul was involved in. Paul was facing charges in that boat crash. One of his friends, Mallory Beach, was killed in that boat crash. And many people believe that he was at the wheel of the boat when it happened. There was testimony from the kids on the boat who said that Paul was at the wheel. His attorneys have said that there is not definitive evidence to that. But even in the documentary, you hear one of the young women who was on the boat who says that she believes that Paul was at the wheel. So, That trial never happened, obviously, before Paul was killed, but that was the beginning of, I think, a lot of unraveling for this family. And Buster talks about the pressure it put his mother under and how upset she was about all of it and how she spent more and more time at Edisto. We don't know whether it put pressure on their marriage. There has been speculation about that. Buster believes his parents had a good marriage. So he is left alone to try to rebuild his life. And his last name is Murdoch, and it's difficult in the town that he lives in. It's a very small town, and their name has obviously had a lot of negative impact around it. So he is, at this point, a young man who's trying to rebuild his life, and he also has something hanging over his head with the Stephen Smith case, which I asked him about. He says he had absolutely nothing to do with Stephen Smith's death. He was one of his high school you know, one of the high school students who was in his class, he says he never had any relationship with him. There have been rumors about that as well, which he denied in our conversation and says that he had nothing to do with his death. But it's just part of the case that during the investigation into the double murders, 
the law enforcement in South Carolina says that they came across something that caused them to reopen the investigation into Stephen Smith's mysterious death in the middle of a road several miles from the Moselle property. So he he has a lot on his plate, and he has uh, a difficult road ahead, but he said he's hopeful that eventually he can rebuild and have a good life. Yeah, the, the financial crimes charges, which was the separate case against his father, you know, haven't gone away either. So there's there's just more to come, and now including this um, this appeal strategy that they've announced. Did you get a sense from him, Buster, that is, that he's optimistic about any particular evidence if there is a new trial? I mean, I know you say the evidence hasn't changed, but is there something that he has latched onto for hope? I think that the defense side believes that because there were no murder weapons found, there were there were no bloody clothing found, that they believe that it's difficult to prove Alex's guilt. Now, one of the biggest issues in this trial was the video that put Alex at the scene of, of their death moments before it's believed to have happened. And that really rocked this entire process, this entire case. And Buster responds to that. I asked him, what did you think about the fact that your father lied not only to the police, but he lied to you about being with Paul and Maggie shortly before they were killed? So he responds to that in the documentary series as well. It's they, they just believe that there's not enough definitive evidence that ties their father to the murders and uh, his father to the murders. And, you know, that that's what he believes. And he's entitled to believe what he wants. But the way that our process works is that you have to convince the jury and this jury found Alec Murdoch guilty. Well, the fall of the House of Murdoch streaming now on Fox Nation. Fox's Martha McCallum, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lisa. Great to be with you. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. This week, a Vietnam War hero was awarded the highest military decoration given to service members, the Medal of Honor. It went to 81-year-old Captain Larry Taylor of Chattanooga, Tennessee, who received multiple standing ovations during an induction at the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes. He was serving as an Army pilot in 1968 and disregarded a direct order, flying his Cobra helicopter into a firefight to rescue four U.S. troops from certain death. He'd been told to return to base, but refused when he learned there were no other rescue helicopters being sent. The Army says a Cobra had never before been used for such a mission. Taylor says he knew what he had to do. I've thought long and hard about that night over and over. And I don't know what we could have done to make it any better. We didn't lose a man. And now uh, Everybody we came with went home with us. Audio courtesy of the Department of Defense. One of the men that Taylor saved that night led the push to have him be recognized with the nation's highest honor. People ask me about that night, uh, you know, what, what possessed you to do that? And I said, well, hell, it needed doing. And uh, I said, you're insane, aren't you? And I said, well, Cobra pilots were a little weird anyway. But uh, 
we all pulled together. And the four guys on the ground, they're part of the team too. And they've become lifelong friends. Only 3,515 U.S. military personnel have received the Medal of Honor out of the 40 million who have served since the Civil War. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tommy Laren. What's on your mind? The internet blog site Reddit is dividing the internet once again after a husband posted his personal story to the infamous Am I an A-hole section. The controversy goes like this. The husband boarded a connecting flight without his wife, effectively abandoning her at the airport after she insisted on getting a Starbucks ahead of the flight she then missed. Now, for context, the husband and wife were on their way to visit their daughter at college when this went down, and according to the husband, this wasn't the first occasion in which his wife's tardiness caused the couple to miss a flight. So is he a jerk for boarding the plane and completing the trip without his wife? The internet and comment section is very divided, but as for me, I side with the husband. It's all fine and dandy to run late and take your time if it only impacts you. Once you start messing with another person's time, you're on your own, married or not. I'm Tommy Laren, and you can watch my show, Tommy Laren is Fearless, at Outkick.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.